Bless the Lord with all our souls. Bless the Lord with our applause. Bless the Lord with our song, our voices, our lives. Thank you for taking us to that soul place today. Did I hear somebody say, bless the Lord? Bless the Lord. Oh, amen. Hmm, what a powerful place to be, that place where we are connected with the one who connects all of life. Today is a day that is long overdue. For with us today is one who is on one hand one of the top scholars, not only in our denomination, but in uh, current work and theology, but one who also comes from a deep soul place, one who works very close to the heart of God's invitation to daily practice our faith, one who is teaching the spiritual practices in a powerful way where she travels and speaks. She's been involved in a number of important writing projects and was on the editing team and also contributed to a wonderful critically acclaimed commentary, The Word is Out. It's a commentary that certainly speaks to GLBTQIA issues and it's excellent to have this kind of a resource and more resources being created. Our guest speaker today most recently has served as pastor of the MCC in Sarasota, but she has certainly contributed in many aspects of our denominational work. And it is my honor and our privilege today to welcome Reverend Dr. Mona West. Welcome to Resurrection. Thank you. You know, I may be a critically acclaimed scholar or whatever that was Duane said, but I want you to know my people come from Louisiana. I was raised Southern Baptist, and in my immediate family of six, there are four of us named Bobby Ray, Norma Faye, Mona Faye, and Donnie Ray. <laughs> and I'm not making that up. It was like growing up in a Flannery O'Connor short story. I do want to thank your pastor for this wonderful opportunity to be with you in worship, and we had a great time at 9 o'clock, and I'm looking forward to, already it's been wonderful, and I've been blessed with the, the choir this morning singing one of my favorite psalms, and, uh, and to be with you already in worship, and so I'm looking forward to the rest of the time that we'll spend together here this morning as we wrestle with these interesting scriptures today. I want to uh, thank Stephen Couch for the incredible opportunity to be here uh, as well. He invited me to come. I want to thank uh, Sharon and Donna for their hospitality. I've been hanging out with them this weekend and their pet family, and we've been having a good old time. And um, I have to say it's wonderful to be here with my, my twin, uh, Denise, uh, Denise Ladd. Come on up here, Denise. What an honor, though, right? <laughs> Live or Memorex. <laughs> what an I honor. I want you to know that um, Dwayne and I were making our way back to his office after the 9 o'clock service. We were traveling along the portico, I guess, back here. And someone said, hi, Dwayne. Hi, Janice. <laughs> so, like, you know. Folks also get me confused with Glenna Shepard. 
who was uh, the uh, region uh, for uh, elder. And, um, I mean, I've been uh, given all kinds of opportunities to preach, you know, because they think uh, I'm Glenna. Um, <laughs> Troy Perry actually called me Mona Shepherd one time, so. <laughs> I want uh, you to think with me for just a moment about uh, choices, especially uh, just think about all the choices you've already made today just to be in this place. Uh, first of all, you made, you made the choice to get out of bed and get here. Uh, you made the choice uh, maybe to have breakfast or not. You made the choice about what you were going to wear, and that certainly includes accessorizing. Yes. You may have chosen to go to Starbucks uh, on the way to church like I did, and uh, you had your choice there of you know, a vente or a grande, a half-calf, no whip, extra hot, whatever. Clearly, we are a culture of choices. You know, it's all about having it our way. I mean, whether it's hamburgers or whether it's cable channels or facelifts or Botox, <laughs> we're going to have it our way. We have lots of choices. And of course, those of us in the U.S., uh, we witnessed and participated in a huge choice this week uh, on Tuesday, Election Day here in the U.S. And these last eight years have taught us as a nation that choosing matters. Our choices about leaders, our choices about war, our choices about oil, our choices about money. And so it's sort of eerie to me that on this Sunday, the Sunday after Election Day in the U.S., that these particular texts would be the assigned texts from the lectionary. Because indeed, there's stories about choices. We heard the word in the, in the, uh, the story from Joshua this morning, choose this day whom you will serve. And in Matthew, the right choice determined who was in or who was out, who was wise or who was foolish. But I want us to take a closer look at these stories because when we start moving around inside of them, they're sort of difficult texts to work through because they are stories about choices, and I believe they're stories that challenge us to really look at the stuff, us, at the stuff of our choosing, the things that we've been living with as a nation. The Joshua story is really about national identity and a transition in leadership. And it's also a story about war as the Israelites consider all the people they destroyed and drove out of Canaan in order to possess that land. And what about the consequences of not enough oil in the parable from Matthew? These stories teach us that choosing matters, but maybe not in the ways that we've traditionally read and interpreted these stories. Yes, choosing matters, but what about the matters of our choosing. What are the things that motivate us in our choices? Where are the spirits and the attitudes operative in our lives around our choices? 
When we go deeper with these texts, I think they challenge us in three different ways about the matters of our choosing. The matter of remembering in our choices, the matter of fear in our choices, and the matter of either or in our choices. There was a a village in India many years ago, and a Brahmin priest lived there, and he was the only educated person in that village, and so he would offer prayers and rituals and services for the local village people. And this priest had a cat, and so before starting the rituals, he would take a rope and tie up the cat to a pillar so that the cat wouldn't wander around and disturb him or the people as they participated in these rituals. And one day the priest died unexpectedly, and so the village people did not know what they were going to do about continuing their rituals. And they thought, well, we'll ask the priest's wife to teach us, to tell us what he would do in these rituals. And then that way we can just perform the rituals ourselves. So they went to the wife and asked her for instructions. And so she began like this. She said, first, you need a cat. And then you need a rope to tie the cat to the pillar. (laughs) And then she proceeded to tell them about the ritual. Our remembering matters. (laughs) What we remember and the way we remember it matters in the choices that we make. At the end of the book of Joshua, which is the passage that we heard for today, Joshua gathers all the leaders of the people of Israel and he reminds them He sort of shapes their remembering. He reminds them of all that God has done for them to bring them to this point of possessing the promised land. And that remembering included reminding all the Israelites of all the indigenous peoples they drove out of the land in order to take it. They were called to remember what God had done to those people and to choose this day whom they would serve, the God of those people, or the God who had done all these things for them. And as I sat with this story this week, and really wrestled with it, I had to ask myself the question, does God truly sanction and destroy other people for the sake of one nation? I mean, my answer would be no. (laughs) And then I asked, how would the Canaanites read this story? How would... Native Americans read this story. How would the people of Darfur read this story? Well, scholars give us a little relief from this troubling text by telling us that the book of Joshua, which sanctions all this destruction on God's behalf, is really a rewriting, a tweaking of the way it really happened. That uh, archaeological discoveries have pointed out that It really, uh, that the uh, taking of the land really didn't happen in quite the way the book of Joshua narrates it. In fact, the book was written long after the Israelites were in the land and had stayed there a while and then were actually driven out of the land by the Babylonians. And so what the writer of Joshua is trying to do is to motivate these people by tweaking the history a little bit uh, as they return to the land. And the writer then attempts to create this national identity by equating God's protection with their past military conquests. So, maybe all those Israelites didn't get killed 
But still, I want to ask the question, what do we do? What do we do with a rewriting of history that justifies a national identity at the expense of the extermination of others and all in God's name? Choose you this day. But what about the choices that have led up to this day? Our remembering matters in our choosing. And LGBTQ folk know that, as well as African Americans and women. We know that history isn't always what it seems to be, and that it's often rewritten to justify violence and hatred. In our remembering, we need to re-examine what we've been told by those in power who have said war is necessary for national identity. In our remembering, we need to re-examine the choices that have been made in God's name that have led to the annihilation of entire groups of people. Our remembering matters. Fear also matters as we consider our choices. Often our places, our choices come from a place of fear, and in particular around fear of not enough. Not enough oil, not enough security, not enough land, not enough money. And in this last year or so, we have seen what choices motivated by fear of not having enough have done to our economy, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, to the poor of New Orleans. And fear is what drives those choices, and fear is what drives the war on terror, a war that will never end. I've always been troubled on some level by this parable that we heard from Matthew's Gospel today, the parable of the ten bridesmaids or virgins that's often translated. It's about fear of not having enough oil. And this fear pits the women in this parable against one another. They're placed in a situation where if one group shares their oil with the other, then they're all going to get left out. And that's how fear of not having enough works. And it works most hideously among the marginalized of our society. So as I wrestled with this story for today, I asked the question, what if the oil in this parable, what if we could look at the oil in this parable in a different way? What if it were something that were not stockpiled or a commodity that determined who was inside and who was out or who was wise, who was foolish? One writer has said, maybe this isn't a story about how much oil you have. Maybe this is a story about the oil you carry with you. When your lamp goes out, you can have gallons of it sitting at home, but it's not going to do you any good there. So maybe another way to engage this parable or hear this parable is to ask the question, what fills me up spiritually when I run dry? And growing up Baptist, we used to sing that song, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. And of course, you have to sing it with a southern accent. 
Yes, we're dependent on oil, but not the kind we stockpile. We're dependent on the kind of relationship with God that produces abundant life, that produces enough, that taps the river of life and love that flows in each of us. The bridesmaids teach us that filling our lamps is not optional. We must do it to be the light of the world that Jesus calls us to be. And the bridesmaids knew that you can't borrow that kind of oil from somebody else. Its source comes from your relationship with your Creator. So how would this parable be different? How would we be different? How would our world be different? How would our choices be different if we operated out of a theology of abundance instead of a theology of scarcity? And thinking about the parable in this way brings me to the last matter I want us to consider about our choices, and that's the matter of either or. I don't know about you, but I feel like we have wrestled with these texts today, and that's a good thing, because we need to be careful when our interpretation of Scripture or gender or God, or Christianity, or anything else locks us into either-or choices. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're gay or you're straight. Either you're male or you're female. Either you're a Canaanite or an Israelite. Either you're a fundamentalist or a liberal. Either you're a Republican or a Democrat. Our African-American brothers and sisters and the transgender folk among us have taught us that it's possible to make a way out of no way. That we serve a God of both and, not either or. And that there's always another way. And that God is found most often in that other way. President-elect Barack Obama said in his acceptance speech this past Tuesday that America has a steep and long road ahead of us to recover from some of the choices that we've made. And I believe that those choices are not limited to whether we are Republican or Democrat. They're not limited to whether a Republican or a Democrat runs the country. That's either-or thinking. To think that one political party or the other has the power to fix this country keeps us from looking more deeply at ourselves as individuals but also as a people. Keeps us from looking more deeply at the choices we have made and continue to make. And those choices, regardless of the way we vote, tend to be fueled around our need and in some sense what we feel like is our sacred right to consume any and everything. The morning after the election, I got an email from a good friend of mine that said, Welcome back, American Dream! And I'm sure that my friend's intentions were good, but the email made me ask the question, Whose dream is it? Is having a black man as our 44th president a part of the American Dream? What kind of dream is it that up until now, no person of color has been president 
I mean, thank God that's happened. Is it the American dream that if you work hard and live right, you'll be successful and have a nice house and a nice car and a nice family? Well, that kind of dream has become a nightmare for LGBTQ folk who don't fit the model of who deserves to have that kind of dream. So maybe we need to demythologize or remythologize or redream that dream so that it becomes a global dream. A dream in which no one gets left out or annihilated, where goods and sources are shared equitably. A dream in which it's not shocking or surprising that a person of color or a woman or a queer could lead a country. A dream where all of us every day remember that choosing matters and that there are matters to our choosing. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.